you pray with me again? Father, what can we do but offer our hearts to you? When we gaze on you and what you did for us on the cross, the full full weight of all of our sin. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning again. Welcome to 2022. Uh, I hope you got to sleep in a little bit yesterday. Um, so you're wide awake for this morning, right? If you're not, I'm going to give permission for the person sitting next to you to give you the elbow, all right? If you uh, doze off this morning and didn't get quite enough sleep, I'm sure we're going to get along fine. Uh, just a quick raise of hands. I'm just curious, how many of you this morning made New Year's resolutions for this year? Wow. Losers. All right, come on. All right, somebody, I know some of you did. All right, all right, some of you did. It's not uncommon, right? People will, you know, make resolutions, lose weight, exercise more, save money, quit smoking. I don't know, there's different, very common ones. I, I want to ask you, if you would have ever considered putting this one on your New Year's resolution list, how many of you would be willing to put on there, I want to build more humility in my life this year? Less pride, more humility. I think that would be a good one. No? It's not a common one. It's not one you hear very often, but I think you can make the case that it's a biblical one. And I think from our text this morning, we're going to see a picture of a person who shines as a prime example of someone who carries the characteristics of humility, someone who's enraptured with Jesus. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 3 if you have your Bibles with you. It's been a few weeks since we've been here in the book of Luke, and so uh, I want to catch you up just a little bit, and maybe you're joining us from up north and you haven't heard some of the background here, but Luke has been focusing his attention, at least in, for the bulk of chapter 3, on the person of John the Baptist. John is a forerunner, of course, to Jesus. John is, we say he's a New Testament prophet, but in reality, we could actually say he was the last Old Testament prophet. He shows up in the New Testament, but he was the last prophet who lived under the Old Testament covenants, proclaiming the coming Messiah. John the Baptist was prophesied him, about himself uh, in the book of Malachi, uh, just before God went prophetically silent for about 400 years. And now John the Baptist makes his appearance on the scene, making a path for the Lord. If you've been with us for the last uh, little while while we've wor worked through Luke, you'll know that John's role was to prepare the people for the future deliverer. 
he would do that by a message that he preached in chapter 3, verse 3, by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, John the Baptist was coming along telling Jew and Gentile alike, you're sinners and you need to repent and you need to be baptized as a symbol, a public proclamation of your desire to follow after God. Well, that message was creating quite a stir uh, among the people, especially Jews, because Jews were thinking in their minds, we are already follower of God's, and based on our ethnic heritage, of course we're going to see God and know God. They, they could not imagine a scenario in which they would be separated from God because of their sin. And so John the Baptist's message, in particular to the Jew, was scandalous. Furthermore, uh, John was not interested in merely intellectual agreement with repentance. When John preached, he demanded that people produce fruit that aligns with their proclamation of repentance. So don't just say you love God. Do it. Prove it. Live it. That was John the Baptist's message. Well, people were coming to John the Baptist from all over. Crowds were coming. Tax collectors were coming. Soldiers were coming. And as he was preaching, they would ask him, what should we do? What should we do? Like in particular, what should we do? And so John the Baptist would give them specific answers based on their specific stations in life. So let me read our text for this morning. We'll pick up the story starting in Luke 3, verses 15. I'm going to read down through verse 18. So we'll just cover these verses this morning. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We'll pause right there. Oh, no, actually, there's another verse. So with many other exhortations, let's go through verse 18. He preached good news to the people. John the Baptist, as he is preaching there, even though he's in the wilderness, his fame is growing. Even though he's out far from where the, the normal crowds are at, people are, are flocking into him. John's a bit eccentric. And in fact, if you read about him in other Gospels, in particular Matthew, you'll find out that John wore a garment of camel's hair he had a leather strap around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. It's kind of an odd, weird kind of guy. But people are intrigued by him. 
His message was convicting. It was demanding. John wasn't interested in some cheap conversion. With John, you were either all in or you're all out. There's no middle ground. And if you tried to play that middle ground with John, he was willing to call you out. In fact, there were people that came to him and he just point blank says, you're nothing but a brood of vipers. Snakes slithering in here. There's no playing around with John. And that message resonated with the people. There was something about John that when you heard him preach, you could just grab hold of it. They began to think to themselves, you know what? The Messiah is coming. We've been waiting for a long time. He's just around the corner. And and the, the excitement about the coming Messiah is, is growing. That, that excitement is John's preaching and people are getting baptized and, and living out, producing fruit. That excitement is just in the air. You can just feel it there in verse 15. It says the people are in expectation and they're questioning in their hearts concerning John. Is this the Christ? You see what's happening here? People then are not unlike people today, and the, the, the rumor train is starting. You know what? I, I, th- I think John might, he might be the Christ. You know what? I didn't think about it. I, he might be. That's a powerful message. We've been waiting a long time. I mean, who else could preach like that? Who could get the crowds in intrigue like that? And the hubbub just starts going through the crowds and Eventually, it makes its way all the way back to the religious elite down in Jerusalem. And so they send out spies. In John 1, verses 19 and 24, we read, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And they had been sent from the Pharisees. I just want to pause right there for a second and let you dwell on this. Do you realize the temptation that John the Baptist is facing right here? He has a growing notoriety. His fame is, is spreading throughout the region. Masses of people are flocking in to hear him. To be baptized by him. He is commanding uh, a certain clerical respect and authority in their lives. And now they start approaching John with this question Who are you? Are you the Christ? I just imagine that Satan is standing right there behind John the Baptist, whispering in his ear, here's your chance, boy. Tell them you're the Christ. They won't know the difference. Tell them you are he. And man, you'll be famous. You'll be rich. You'll be popular. You'll be the king. That temptation to pride 
even if John did that temporarily, would have led him to untold fame and wealth and power, at least for a time, (laughs) he would have been the man. Huge. I hesitate to even tell you this uh, personal story because I know some of you are going to use this against me for the rest of my life, all right? I I know, but I'm willing to tell you uh, just because it it makes the point, okay? How many of you remember a television series called Friends? It ran from the 1990s into the early 2000s. Okay, the reruns are everywhere today. Uh, It's making this uh, comeback. There was a cast member uh, on the show Friends named Matt LeBlanc who played the character of Joey Tribbiani. You remember him? Joey. He was the funny guy on the show. Apparently, some people thought I looked like Joey Tribbiani. He has a big forehead. At the time, he had black hair. He kind of used to spike it up like mine, okay? Uh, so people would often say, you look like Joey Tribbiani off the Friends, okay? Um, I was sitting in, in the chair at a hairstylist back in Indiana one day when a mom and a little girl come running to the back where I was sitting, and the mom says to me, my daughter walked in, and when she saw you, she starts yanking on my arm saying, Mom, it's Joey. Mom, it's Joey. And Joey is her favorite character right now. And so she wanted to come over and say hi. Is that okay? <laughs> now, what would you do? Here is a little girl with all of her hopes and dreams of one day meeting her favorite television crush, and she walks in, and there he's sitting. Do you break her heart? Not to mention, in that moment, there was the greatest swell of pride. Not that I necessarily wanted to look like Matt LeBlanc, but he was famous, right? Right? And so, I mean, what's it going to hurt for just a couple minutes? I mean, my pride is just streaming. What would you do? I put my hand on my heart, and I said to the little girl, Oh, Thank you so much for watching my show. (laughs) It means the world to me. And that little girl beamed and walked off saying she's going to tell all of her friends how she met Joey Tribbiani. Friends, I bald-faced lied to a nine-year-old girl just to get a couple moments of pride. Can you imagine anything more superficial? Now, if I was willing to do that for just two minutes, 
Can you imagine the temptation John the Baptist must have been feeling when the crowds are pressing him? Are you the Christ? They have been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. There is no one lined up on the banks of the Jordan River who would have any clue otherwise. If he would say yes, who would dispute it? His fame, his reputation, his authority would have propelled him to immediate greatness. Oh, the temptation. You feel it? The treasure was at his fingertips. Now, you and I know that had John lied that day, he would have been caught really quick because the Messiah has already been born. The Messiah has already shown up on the scene of human history. And the Messiah is going to come to be baptized by John the Baptist. So this Jesus Christ would eventually have shown up and John the Baptist would have looked the fool. So John knew this. He knew it. And even though the the whisper was there and the temptation was there, John knew he could never claim for himself what wasn't his. And so he did the right thing. Told the truth. Verse 16, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John could do nothing more in his ministry but to rouse people um, with a struggle after repentance and a change of heart. That's all he could do. John could declare to people what they should do, and he could baptize them with water. But John knows and admits here that he is absolutely powerless to bring about any change in their hearts and in their lives. But he can point to the one who can. And that's that's what he does. He says, no, 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 I baptize you with water. But there is a guy coming after me, the real Messiah. He is mightier than me. In fact, he is so powerful and he is so mighty and he is so much glorious, more glorious than me that I am not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Now, to untie the strap of anybody's sandals, you and I know, regardless of our culture, that that would be a menial task. I mean, you you would understand that nobody wants to bow down, lean down, and untie the crusty, dirty sandals of somebody who's been walking along the roads of Galilee and, and Judea. Only a slave would do that. But even among the slaves, Hebrew slaves did not have to do that for another Hebrew. It was so beneath dignity's duty. And so when John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals, what he is saying is, this Christ who is coming is so 
high above me. And I am so low compared to him. I am not even worthy to do less than what a non-Hebrew slave would do. That's how bad I really am. John had a pride-crushing understanding of himself compared to Jesus. Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is a member of the Trinity. He was involved in creation. He upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. Jesus is flawless. Jesus is without error. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the bread of life. He's the door to the Father. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He's the exalted one. He's the ruler of nations. He's the the great judge of the universe. There is no one higher than Jesus. John knows this. John knows he's a sinner. And John knows that his heart is prone to run after self, self-glorification, self-recognition, self-accolades. He, he understands that his heart is rebellious toward God, and as a result, he stands condemned by the same law that he preaches to the crowds. John knows his place. It's this John who says of Jesus in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knows that he has to repent too. He's also a sinner that needs a Messiah. A Messiah that can do something that John can never do. A Christ, a Messiah that can change people from the inside out. How does the Messiah do that? Look at the end of verse 16. John says, well, this Messiah, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, John's baptism, when he baptized people with water, was an external baptism. It, it was just on the outside. It was, it was merely symbolic. In other words, that external washing of water was meant to symbolize what was supposed to have already happened on the inside, a change of heart, not the other way around. Baptism doesn't change the heart, but when the heart is changed, the person should be baptized. Let me give you this uh, maybe insert. It's not uncommon uh, for me to get questions uh, from parents whose children want to get baptized. Very common. A parent will come to me and they'll say something like, uh, my child wants to get baptized. What do you think? Do you think, do you think they should be baptized? Well, first and foremost, uh, that desire for baptism is a good thing. Right? We want our children to desire to be baptized because baptism is an act of obedience. It's the first act of obedience to Scripture. Repent and be baptized. So we don't want to diminish in any way that desire to be baptized. But the question I always ask back to the parent is this. Have you sensed a change in your son or daughter? 
do you sense within them a greater obedience to you and to the Lord? Is there a desire? Do you see a desire in that child to be in God's word, to be asking questions about Jesus? Is there a desire there to to serve others, particularly uh, other family members? If those things are there, then okay, let's let's talk about it. let's let's move forward with that consideration of baptism because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for changes that are coming from the heart. But if those changes are not there, if we are unsure that there was an inward heart transformation that's taken place, then I say, you know what? Let's let's just hold on that for a little bit. Let, let's pause on that baptism for a minute. Uh, let's. Keep that child in Sunday school. Let's keep teaching him. You disciple him or her. And let's come back around to that at some point. Because water baptism does not save anyone. That's not what changes a person. It is only representative of something else. It's only representative of Holy Spirit baptism that's already happened inside. And Holy Spirit baptism doesn't mean speaking in tongues or some secondary salvific experience. When Paul, or excuse me, when when John uses those words, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about is rebirth. He's going to birth you again. He's going to cause you to be born again. That Holy Spirit is going to give you his life. He's going to baptize you into the person of Christ. You're going to become alive as a spiritual being. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about Holy Spirit baptized. You've been baptized into Christ. You are now part of a spiritual family. And the evidence that that has happened is that he will baptize you not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire, according to verse 16. Well, what is that? Well, fire is a refining element. It's a purifying element. He is going to begin burning out all of the dross from your life, all of the bad, all of the ugliness, and he's going to start purifying you. So that's what fire does to precious metal. It it purifies it. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. No human can do that for you. I can preach, John the Baptist can preach and tell you all the laws and tell you all the things to do. And you can even attempt to obey them on your own strength. But only God can give you life through the Holy Spirit, and only God can do the transformational, purifying work in your heart. John understood this. He was not the Christ, but he was looking forward to the glorious triumph of Christ and for the things that only God could do. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why he's called the good news in verse 18 as he's preaching. The good news, the good news that says you, me, like John the Baptist, are sinners. We're not, unworthy, we're not worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. But guess what? Jesus came into the earth and lived a life of perfection. 
He came into the earth and he died in your place on the cross and he rose again. And John says, if you will repent and if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, do you know what he'll do for you? He will do what only he can. He will transform you from the inside out by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by fire. That is good news. That is good news. If you understand the depth of your own sin and how much grace Christ has extended to you, then every shred of pride you have in your life can be stripped away. Pride cannot exist in an environment where I reflect on what Jesus did for me. Instead of pride, there's only gratitude and worship. When these crowds were coming, I wonder if John thought, I wonder what the people would, will think of me when I put myself as lower than a slave. I wonder what the people are going to think of me when I tell them I'm a sinner. Are they all going to just walk away? Maybe you wonder that too. Maybe you're a person who feeds off of the praise of men. Maybe you love when people recognize you and maybe you're afraid to admit that you're a sinner too and and maybe you are the type of person that you are devastated when someone points out your flaws. If you're proud like that, look to the Messiah like John did. Look to the cross. I just recently finished reading this book by authors Joel Beakey and Nick Thompson. The book was written to pastors, but there's a wide applicability. It's called Pastors and Their Critics. And in the one section of the book, the authors write this. I want to read this because it applies really to anyone. To hear the proclamation of Christ crucified is to hear the most comprehensive and cutting critique of ourselves. In the light of the cross, we are taught the painful but liberating truth that we are always worse than our worst human critic makes us out to be. It is not possible to paint us too blackly. The breathtaking reality is that at the cross, Christ has swallowed up the judgment that our rebellion deserved. In him, God views us as though we have not the slightest taint of sin. He justifies us. If we really understood this, we would exclaim, if God justifies me, accepts me, and will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure and fear criticism? Such is the practical outworking of the gospel. To the extent that we possess an experiential acquaintance of our glorious acceptance, adopted status, and unshakable security in Jesus Christ, we will not excessively fear the frowns of man or be quick to issue issue hypercritical frowns toward others. John looked at the crowds that day. He looked at his own heart. He looked 
toward the coming Messiah, and he said to the crowds, Nope, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. He has to save me, just like he has to save you. It is the pride-crushing grace of Jesus that allowed John the Baptist to answer fully and truthfully to those crowds. And John has a warning for them, and he has a warning for us. You either accept that coming Messiah, or you reject him. You either accept him or you reject him. Interestingly, both options come with fire. This is interesting. If you accept him, you will receive the purifying, refining fire of the Holy Spirit. But if you reject Jesus, you choose to chase after your own pleasure, if you refuse to humble yourself and admit you need a Savior, you'll face a different kind of fire. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In the threshing days of old, they would take all the stalks of barley or wheat, they would lay them out on this big, flat, hard surface, and then they would hitch to the oxen these sleds, heavy sleds. On the bottom of the sleds, they would attach really uh, sharp stones. They would take the oxen, and they would walk the oxen around and around, dragging those sleds across the sheaves of barley and wheat. And as as the stones hit those uh, sheaves, the soft shell and all the leaves and all the dust would separate uh, from the hard kernels. The heavier kernels would, uh, would all, they would all stay there. Then they would take these long winnowing forks, they were called, forks, two or three prongs at the end, and they would take the, the grain and they would throw it up in the air. And as they threw it up in the air, the heavier kernels of grain would fall back down. The wind wouldn't carry that off. But the wind would carry away all of the dust and dirt and shells and leaves that all kind of blow off to the one side. They would do this over and over and over again until only the pure grain was left there. That chaff, as it was called, would be gathered together over on the side, heaped together, and it was burned. So catch what John is saying there in verse 17. If you believe in Jesus as your Messiah, you are like the wheat that stays put. And that wheat is gathered together into the barn. You're, you're brought in. You're, you're protected. You're placed into the barn where you'll be used in a place of glory to bring honor and praise to God. But if you reject the Messiah, you're like the chaff. You'll exist for a time. You'll be around for a bit, but there's coming a day when the threshing will take place. And when that threshing takes place, you're going to be exposed because you're going to be blown over here to the side. And at that point, there's a gathering of the chaff and there is 
an eternal finality, an irreversible uh, nature of final judgment. No one can escape that. So John says those are the options. In verse 18, it says, with many other exhortations, he preached good news. That, that was good news. And we would say, well, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes when I hear uh, things about um, judgment, it doesn't seem like very good news. Well, let me tell you something. As long as you can hear about judgment, means you still have time to escape it. That's the good news. As long as you can hear it, you can hear the gospel. The message of repentance is good news because it means forgiveness is still possible. You can still pass from death into life and become part of God's kingdom if you repent and follow after Jesus Christ. The tragedy and the consequences of your sin are not irreversible if you turn from your pride and you accept God's grace. So the question remains, will you accept him as Lord? Will you allow the pride-crushing grace of Jesus to change you from the inside out? Today's your day. Today's your day. Repent and be saved. Let me pray. God, thank you for this message. Thank you that we still have time to repent and be saved. Thank you that in the lives of your people, you are still purifying. You're burning out all the dross. With the fire of your Holy Spirit, you're changing us. You're renewing us. You're transforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. And for that, we thank you. It's hard to have that burnt out of our heart, but it's worth it. Father, if there be any here this morning who don't know you, who've never repented of their sin, who who have run from you, Father, today, would you cause them to be born again? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, regenerate their heart, give them spiritual life where they open their eyes in newness of life, see a Savior, repent and run after him. Father, I pray that you do what only you can do in the hearts of sinful men and women. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the glorious sacrifice of your son for whom we praise and give our honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.